So we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 today. So if you open your Bibles there, if you haven't already, I'll be reading from the ESV, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, even though today I will preach from verses 2 to 10. I also want to note that God is amazing because the opening today, I swear to you that Steve and I did not collude, that uh, the newness that Christ brings fits right in with the change of our lives, and so that's pretty cool to see. Um, it is Esther Carey's last Sunday with us. So after I finish reading the scripture in First Thessalonians, I'll pray for the message for our hearts and then for Esther as well. I think it's fitting to do that in light of our text today. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything." For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus makes us new, that he changes everything about us and that we can hope in him, that we can love him because he loved us that we can work to please him because of our faith. Father, thank you that Esther is an example of this. I pray that you would continue the good work in her, as you say in 1 Thessalonians 4, that she will excel still more. That your hand would be upon her for good and for righteousness, that she might have an impact in the hearts and lives of those whom she works with. That she might have a chance to share about Jesus daily. Pray your blessing on her again as she goes upon our hearts this morning. We ask, Lord, that we might see Jesus and him alone clearly in this new year. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, the sun is an amazing and beautiful thing, isn't it? It's actually a giant gas ball, but it's huge. It's 109 times the size of the earth. We cannot even look at it directly, right? Because its rays are so bright, even though it's 93 million miles away, that we would go blind if we were to do that for a long time. Its gravitational pull is 28 times that of Earth's. And its gravitational force extends two light years or 12 trillion miles away. Everything that enters this invisible force is changed and its course altered. Asteroids veer off course and crash into planets or take a totally new route. Objects straying too close are permanently altered and, in fact, some are stuck circling the sun 
itself, right? Like our earth. Indeed, the earth we live on permanently is in a circle rotating around it, changed. Any debris unlucky enough to get within roughly 2 million miles of the surface of the sun, it's just a long way away, is immediately incinerated. Nothing can actually hit the surface of the sun because of the heat. We are actually close enough, though, on the earth that its light provides life for us, and we can see, because of it, the heat of the sun provides us the ability to survive and not freeze to death. Indeed, everything, in short, that draws near to the sun is changed forever. There is also an unavoidable change that Jesus Christ produces in everyone who draws near to him. It's a wonderful and amazing change that sets us on a different course, a different path of life. He changes our destiny, our actions, our interactions with others, and even our very character. In other words, who we are at our core is changed. A relationship with Jesus changes everything and makes it new. But sometimes there is an eclipse of him in our hearts and we fail to see that he is still shining. It is to this trial of a Christ who changes everything but seems too dark to see in the midst of persecution that Paul speaks to the Thessalonians, a church in the midst of persecution enduring years-long suffering in need of a reminder that the Son of Righteousness indeed still shines and is still at work in their lives and in their community to change them and their world around them for His glory. In fact, our relationships... And our character indeed changes when we draw near to him. I want to revisit verses 2 and 3 first, as the first section of 3 in this beginning chapter of Thessalonians. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Thessalonians was produced because of their relationship with Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to see in this text. Their hope produced endurance. Their faith produced work. And their love for Jesus produced labor or hard work. Let's look at those fruits or the outward production, if you will, in the Thessalonians. The work. This is a generalized pattern of life. It is practical proof, in other words, or acting in accordance with your faith. It's a generalized pattern of ministry, Paul says in Ephesians 4.12. So this is a general characterization of life of a believer. The deeds, then, are next. I think these are the most important one of the three here in one sense because they're specific actions, like caring for a sick friend or sharing the gospel with a neighbor Or in the case of the Thessalonians, putting an idol in the trash that's unavoidable the next time your friend comes to the house to see that you put your idol in the trash. The hard acts accompanying the gospel. That's what this word really means. It's hard. It's always associated with down and dirty work of the gospel. And actually, it also always has social repercussions. It's the people work of the ministry. And so Paul says that your love for Christ has produced, follow that, a love for other people. It's a labor, a toil. And isn't that true, right? People work is often said to be the hardest work because we're sinners, other people are sinners, and what happens then? Conflict, difficulty. 
hardship. So that's what I think Paul has in mind when he says labor. Actually, also, sadly, in a broken world, even though it's great because Jesus said you'll be a light on a hill shining for all to see, deeds are the things that make our light shine. But in difficult places like in Thessalonica or many places around the world today, that can actually physically be a very bad thing. It's like painting a red X on you, sending you out into a shooting range and saying, go ahead and start shooting. That's what good deeds do for believers in the midst of persecution. They are like a shining light or an X in a shooting range. But on the other side of that, persecution becomes the proof of our faith, does it not? When trial comes, it comes because we're acting in accordance. We're doing the deeds. We're sharing the gospel. We're living as Christ would. And so persecution comes. And it's a mark of faith. Why would Satan attack us? Why would our flesh rise up? Why would the world hate us if we weren't doing as God asked? And so I think that's what's in mind here. And so then we move to endurance. Why endurance? Why does Paul make a big deal of that here? Well, mainly because the last time we read of Thessalonica, do you remember what was going on? There was a giant mob in the city that pulled out a prominent believer named Jason, extorted believers for money, basically made them pay an exorbitant amount of money, or else they were going to kill him. And then Paul had to escape basically under cover of night over the walls of Thessalonica. In other words, Thessalonians wasn't, the Thessalonians weren't in a city like Dallas. Thessalonica did not uh, have any kind of friendship toward believers. And so Paul writes this letter years after his first visit. They have been undergoing persecution for years. And so they have need of endurance. All of the fruit, again, is produced because of their relationship. This endurance, this labor... This work, the pattern of life, is produced because of their relationship with Jesus. In other words, they trusted, believed, hoped in, loved Jesus. That phrase there, in Christ Jesus, I believe relates to every one of those three places. They hoped in him for life after death and a reward better than anything they could get on this earth. They trusted in him for his promises, not just to be saved. Yeah, that's true. But also for daily provision, food. When you're persecuted, food becomes a hard thing to acquire because people hate you and won't sell to you. Food, protection for their families, strength to carry on. All of those things that Jesus promises and even prays for, for his believers, for his followers in the Lord's prayer. They love Jesus because he first loved them. That was their response to the gospel. They hoped in him. They loved him and they trusted him. Paul wrote these things to encourage them in the midst of persecution. For the Thessalonians, the real battle was believing, despite persecution, that their life could do something, could affect change, that God had actually changed them and could do something meaningful with their life. He reassured them that indeed God had changed them. He had changed the outward fruit of their faith. He had changed them so that they could have an impact around them. A relationship with Jesus, brothers and sisters, always changes what our lives produce. Doesn't it? I call this the outward response of the gospel. And it's the first thing that Paul talks about. 
He says, when God's people focus on Christ, when they have that holy trinity of three attributes, faith, hope, and love for him, it will always produce good fruit. This is like a common phrase throughout the Bible, isn't it? You always find these things, faith, hope, and love, together. Not always, but most times they're together in this context. Faith in Christ. Hebrews 11, James, the whole book, talks about faith and works. Love in Christ produces obedience. John 14. Romans 5 talks about hope in Christ producing endurance and endurance character. And that is the way that God has designed the believing life to be for followers of Jesus. So I guess I would say to us then, in this century, that we need to also let Jesus change everything, including what our life produces. He cares deeply about about how we produce what we do. And he cares, though, that we do produce something. In one sense, though we aren't facing jail or hate uh, that manifests itself in a riot, we too face difficult situations in our changing culture. We all actually even more so have daily struggles with our faith that squeeze something out of us, don't they? I heard once that when, when trials come, something you're going to be squeezing, something is going to come out. And, and the goal is that it's a believing response, not a doubting one. But in one sense, though, the promise of Christ in this passage is that you can and will impact others. That's the encouragement of Paul to them and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit to us today. You can make an impact on others. You can experience the joy of producing for the Lord Jesus Christ when your hope and faith and love are in him. So one possible application of this, I am suggesting this to you, not as the only thing you should do as a result of this passage, but I want to be specific enough so you don't leave here saying, oh, that was a great sermon, and then leave with nothing to remember or do. So one possible application is to do a labor of love. And if you remember, I said, what is that? Well, that's a hard thing in the context of a relationship. So one thing you might do is to start or renew a relationship with someone with a Christ-centered focus that God has laid on your heart. For me, that's my neighbor, Ken. I've known him for a very long time. We've cut wood together, and he's, he loves my son Hezekiah, letting him play on his tractor. But I've never really shared the gospel clearly with him. He knows what I do, and sometimes I take comfort in that fact. But God has convicted me through this that I ought to share with him. And so for me this week, that's him. You could begin by praying for that person for an hour. That would be a great start because it center your focus on Christ just where the Thessalonians was. Maybe you could use First Thessalonians chapter 1 as your Bible text reading, not just for a day, but for a week or the book itself to help you see what God wants to do, wants to produce with your life. And then you could persevere in that relationship because chances are in this culture, right, it's not going to be the first time. You're not going to have some great revival in the heart of this friend immediately. That might happen. God is able. But chances are you'll have to persevere like the Thessalonians did in this relationship. That, to me, is hard work. You know, it was a man named Steve Knapp who began a relationship with a rebellious, annoying, proud 21-year-old something like 14 years ago and through whom God changed my life. See, that was me. I was very much going down the wrong path, working at Arby's, doing things that we don't need to talk about now. But he was an elder at my local church. And you know what? 
and I don't mean this in offense to him or to anyone here, but he had nothing particularly awesome that I liked about him. He was an ordinary guy. He happened to be an accountant. Sorry to all you accountants in here. But uh, he was an accountant, for heaven's sake. I don't know. He wasn't, there wasn't, he didn't play sports, except he had a ping pong table in his house. That was a big draw. I love ping pong. But the fact is that he didn't write a book. He didn't have anything great that commended him. You know what it was that changed my life through him? It was faithfulness every day, every hour. I'm sure he prayed for me countless times. And it was him calling me. And I remember the first time that I actually kind of agreed to go meet with him because it was several times before. I confess to you, it wasn't because I was like super spiritual. Number one, I was hungry and he wanted to take me to lunch. I was poor and I was going to get a good lunch. And frankly, I was slightly annoyed by this guy I didn't really know bugging me. But I can honestly point back to that day and I don't remember what he said to me. I know we had Italian though and I can tell you the name of the restaurant. But it was that day that began my change. And that's why I can honestly say partly because of that man and God's work through him that I stand here today. Who will be your Steve? Who will be your Philip this week? Will God use you? Will he change you in the product of your life just like he did the Thessalonians? That's my prayer for you. And that's my prayer for myself, that God would begin this new year with a Christ-centered focus in the lives of other people. See, Jesus changes what our lives produce. What we are about in this world, he did it, and he will continue to do it. So that is the outward fruit. Let's move on to chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know... What kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now I'm going to go through a long list here, so stay with me. We're going to look at exactly what changed in the Thessalonians' life. And we're going to list eight things. Okay? I would say, though, that as a whole what you should remember is that everything about the Thessalonians' character changed because of Jesus and the gospel. So starting in the text, first, their value changed. They were loved by the God of the universe. See what he says there? Loved by God. Much more than any human father, mother, brother, sister, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, this changes everything. And it's amazing. It's what Paul starts with. Their value changed because they were loved by God. Secondly, their ownership changed hands. Yeah, that seems a little strange in this day and age. But the Bible is clear that we're either slaves to God or slaves to sin. They became owned by God. They were elected by Him. That's the election word. This word has a belonging sense. When you read election, you should think change from one family to another. Chosen, special, family ties throughout Scripture. In other words, their ownership changed hands. Third, their source of power changed. He said the gospel came to you with power. Now, power is an interesting thing, isn't it? We're always told that power corrupts, and ultimately, power, ultimate power corrupts ultimately. But I read this a little differently. 
I read that this is a positive thing, don't you? If he says it came to them with power, what can he mean? And I think this is right power from God, resurrection power. I'm not talking about just changed lives. And I'll admit to you, I went back and forth in this passage. I was like, yeah, there are no miracles recorded in Thessalonica. There are no miracles recorded here. And I went around and looking around at different passages. And often, like in the Gospel of John, John says that Jesus did many other things that I can't record here. So I've landed, for one reason, the text of Scripture on the fact that it was probably not just changed lives, the power he's talking about, but miracles. Another one is because, honestly, of what comes later, but also because of what God has been doing in my life. The Holy Spirit is active and doing miracles around the world if we would just open our eyes to see it. He is active and His power is living. So, their source of power changed. Fourth, the gospel came to them in the Holy Spirit. What do I think this means? Well, pretty sure that it means it's not a spirit of gaming all day or lusting after women or men or shopping all day or lounging all day, but a holy one. A different kind of spirit. God himself, one that makes people joyful and excited and self-controlled and peaceable and merciful. In other words, if you haven't picked it up, the fruits of the spirit. That's what he's saying. A different kind of spirit controlled them. Fifth, and probably the one that changed me most of this whole thing and kind of added to the conclusion I had is this phrase that in most of your Bibles is probably translated full conviction. Right? This one, I think, should probably mean something like all fullness. In other words, this is what I mean here. It means the gospel came holistically. They didn't get robbed. Right? They didn't have some kind of half experience with Jesus when Paul was preaching to them. The Thessalonians got the full gospel. If the gospel comes in word in your life only as arguments and philosophies, it's not the full gospel. If it doesn't come with power, it's not the real gospel. If it isn't the truth in accordance with sound doctrine about Jesus, in other words, if Jesus is just another guy that has a good teaching... It's not the right gospel. If it doesn't change our desires and our holiness, it's not the real gospel. People see right through our words. I was talking with someone, I think it was Steve, yeah, in our, in our prayer this morning. Kids see right through you, don't they? Your family sees right through you. Long-term relationships are hard to pull the wool over someone's eyes in regard to the change of God in our life. And that's what this is talking about. The gospel came to them in change, and it came changing everything they did, including these five things that we've talked about. Sixth, it changed who they imitated. Instead of the most popular brickmaker down the street, they wanted to follow Paul. They wanted to share their possessions joyfully. Instead of three hours at the local chariot race, it was three hours at the local infirmary. Instead of wanting to be the best at Clash Royale, I see some high school students sitting here, maybe you guys don't play that, but I know some who do, or Destiny, or Magic, or whatever game you play, or having the best naturally healthy family without ever taking medication, whatever it is, instead of that, pursuing Christ and imitating Paul's way of life. Seventh, They were joyful despite persecution. The Christian life is characterized by a deep and unrelenting joy 
John Piper's whole life message about this. And he says, actually, that anything that we do that takes our focus off of Christ is a joy killer. I find that ironic because, humanly speaking, we would think someone trying to kill you and making fun of you for following Jesus would be a joy killer. That would be the natural way of thinking. But in God's upside-down way, actually undergoing persecution and being made fun of increases our joy, increases our hope, increases our love in Christ. I think you may have experienced that. I know I have. Finally, they were an example. You know, it's one thing, I was talking to Derek, it's one thing to know that you're doing okay. You know, you've done a good job. But it's another at work when your boss comes to you and says, man, thanks for doing such a great job. I'm going to give you a special project. I'm going to have you train some people. You know you've arrived, in one sense, at the job. You know that you're doing well if you're asked to train someone. If you're asked to be a model. And that's exactly what Paul says about these Thessalonians. They were a model. And that's where I get the word character from. They, their character was something that was to be imitated. Okay. What do I, why am I giving you all those things? Mainly this. Wouldn't you say that Thessalonians were a changed bunch at the very core? Everything about them had changed. I think for us too, a relationship with Jesus inevitably changes who we are at our core, our character. And you know the first scripture example that I went to when I thought about this is Mark 5.15. Here's a demon-possessed man that Satan has destroyed every single thing about him, hasn't he? This man can't be controlled physically. He's babbling. He can't interact with people. In fact, he's ritually unclean. He's in the graves. No one wants to talk to him. This man is destroyed. And Jesus comes into his life and changes everything about him. The text says he was sitting clothed in his right mind. In fact, I think people were probably scared of that fact. That's the kind of change that God does in our character. And actually, the inner work of God in our hearts is the most amazing thing. It's more powerful because, amen is right, because our hearts are absolutely wicked. It's easy to change actions. It's difficult to change the wicked and prideful heart of men. But that's what God does. He changes what we want, how we think, how we respond to betrayal and hardship. He changes our emotional state to joy and blessedness and excitement for life instead of the opposites. You know, this Christmas, my dad told me an amazing story of a lady named Francois. She was an ESL student. Actually, I think she still might be of his. She grew up in the Congo. But when she was 16, the opposition party overran her village and most of her family was killed while she and her sister watched from the bushes. She miraculously escaped to Zimbabwe and later to America. Several years ago, she went back to see if she could find any of her family. Surprisingly, somehow her mother survived and Francois found that she was living in the same village. Even more shocking, she was told that it was the neighbor's young son who had been the one to turn them in to the opposition party who had invaded their village and murdered hundreds of people. Not only that, but somehow this boy had come to be living with her mother in the same house, angry and tearful. She asked her mother how this could possibly be allowed. 
Her mother recounted that after the attack, this boy was caught and sentenced to life in prison. But she had become a follower of Jesus during that same time. She felt that if Jesus could forgive her sins, she ought to forgive this boy, now a man. So, day after day, she would visit the prison. And not unexpectedly, the guards did not believe her motives for visiting the prison to see this young man. In fact, they turned her away thinking that she wanted revenge, like she had some hidden poison or a knife or a gun or some way to kill this man. After a year of going at least once every week, the guards finally allowed her in. The boy trusted Christ after some short time, and she actually miraculously secured his release from prison by petitioning the government. The boy became completely changed. And to this day, right now, this man lives. He works as a servant in that home, eating and living with the family that he betrayed to murder. Now, that is a change of the living God in the life of his people and the lives of a community. I say you, let Jesus change you. Who you are so that you will excel still more. So that you will continue on in the faith and be encouraged. So you will have an impact on those around you like Francois. So two questions came to my mind. What if I'm not changed? Maybe you are, but don't know what to look for is the first thing I'd say. Or you're too prideful and picky about your own progress. I must admit that some people, like yours truly, can be perfectionists and are just beginning to understand grace. I confess that to you. I'm just beginning to understand God's grace and changing me. Some areas, God changes you might not think to look for. Your power over the tongue, instead of using the F word and the S word, it's seasoned with salt and encouraging to others and builds them up instead of tearing them down. Maybe your attitude toward money has changed. You actually happily, joyfully give food or money itself to the homeless, to those in need, to widows and the poor. Maybe your affection for people has changed. Whereas you couldn't stand someone in your life, now it's okay. I don't know what it is that God has changed in you, but maybe you're looking for the wrong thing if you think God hasn't changed you. But if you cannot point to any change in your life, none whatsoever, then maybe it is time to start examining your love and hope and faith in Christ. But then that brings me to another question before we become a works-oriented salvation and sanctification. How do I know I'm changed? Or in other words, putting it differently, how do I know I'm saved? Is there any love for Christ in your life? Is there any ounce of affection for him personally? Do you see him on the cross and identify with him as your savior? Do you weep and rejoice at the same time over his forgiveness of your sins and the penalty of sin? If there is any, and my answer is yes, you have been changed. How do I know that? Well, God says that any love for Christ is opposed to the flesh. And the flesh, if we're honest, hates Jesus. So any love for him is an evidence of God's change in your life. But in order to experience more of the reality of our changed nature, we must cultivate that relationship to Jesus. Like the Son, he changes everything of those who draw near. So draw nearer to him, repent of sin, and he will change your life. Let's move on to the last part. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. My last point from the text is that we can see the gospel changed how the Thessalonians interacted with others. It changed their interpersonal relationships so that they actually became so famous that other people were telling Paul his own gospel. Now that's crazy. Have you ever called someone you really know well, like your wife or your sister or brother? I do that often and I'm like, hey babe, have you? She's like, yeah, I've already made that dinner arrangement. I'm like, how did you know that? Right? That's a little bit like what I think Paul is going and doing. Yet it's even crazier because there's no phones, there's no internet, it's hundreds of miles away, and they're like finishing his sentence. He's like, did you hear that Jesus, yeah, raised from the dead? I heard it from those guys over there that are beat for their beliefs, but they, they told me about it. That's what's going on. They became eternally famous for their actions and faith and love in this city. But something struck me, and you can call me stupid or proud or whatever it is, as I was studying this passage that I hadn't seen before. And I suppose I should have noticed a long time ago, and that's this, that these people actually had jobs. In other words, these are everyday people, like me and you. They weren't some super missionary, and yet they had a massive impact on their culture. They were mothers and fathers. They were sisters and brothers. They were accountants, and they changed their culture. See, the gospel, Jesus, changes everything, even everyday life for us. Living and ministering for the Thessalonians and for you and for me are not so divorced as we like to think. A meal can turn into an opportunity to share the gospel if we would lift up our eyes and see God's work. When someone makes fun of us, it could turn into an opportunity to share the love of Christ. Even a road rage incident could turn into something useful for the kingdom if we would only be rooted in Christ. Interestingly, at the end of this passage in verse 10, a phrase, living God, ties together everything I've been saying. It means that not only is God alive, in other words, like he's not a dead God, but that he is active to change the lives of those who believe in him. He is still alive today and working in your life, in the life of your brothers and sisters here in this community, and thousands of miles away in North Korea. He is active. He has not stopped working. And that's what Paul wanted to communicate to the Thessalonians. They were his children, and he was still working in their lives. To be a light to the world, then, I think we must really know Jesus. In other words, to share him, we must know him. We must be filled with satisfaction in him so that our cup overflows. We can't provide something to someone else that doesn't satisfy us. Faking it won't work. People see right through that. We must know him personally to be able to share him with others. It also must be that God uses everyday, ordinary people. So what everyday action for you would stand out and be a witness for Christ? These are some of the things that I think for them, the Thessalonians, for us, would make a difference. 
Throwing idols in the trash for them, maybe your cell phone here, if it's taking your worship away from God and gains. Not having sex outside of marriage or any kind of sexual immorality is absolutely countercultural then, and it is now. Sharing about Jesus despite being made fun of. Bravery. That would change. That would make an impact. Kindness despite that. Hard work as a pattern of your life instead of entitlement. Putting in the extra hours at work makes a difference. Humility instead of pride. There are many famous examples of proud men and women in our culture today. Humility would certainly make a difference in our culture today. I have a final story and then an exhortation before I actually want to turn it over to Philip to talk about one practical thing we can do to impact our culture. A man named Dimitri was imprisoned in the communist USSR roughly 35 years ago. He was an everyday man, a farmer with kids and a wife, but he dared to share his faith. And so he was arrested. Every morning at daybreak for 17 years, he would stand at attention by his bed, the bars in front of him, raise his hands to the east, and sing a heart song, he called it, to Jesus. Well, as you can imagine, that was not the best thing, humanly speaking, he could do because the prisoners reacted predictably. They spat and cursed. They threw food and feces at him and banged metal cups on the doors to drown out his words. The guards beat him consistently for his open faith, but it became something of a ritual of faithfulness to God for him and helped him to keep his faith and stay sane. At one point, however, they told him that his wife and kids had been murdered and that he was next. This was the breaking point. He said, God, I can't keep going. This is too much. So he called the guards over and told them that in the morning he would sign a confession basically saying that he did not believe in Jesus, never had him, that Jesus was a lie. The Christian faith meant nothing to him, and everyone should turn away. But during that night's prayer, the Lord let him hear the voices of his sons, daughters, and wife praying to God in the night. So, the next morning, the guards came around with a paper, but they were shocked to find him standing toward the east by his bed with his hands raised, Singing. They asked what happened, Dimitri, and he told them. And then they beat him. Soon after, without Dimitri being told, of course, an amazing thing happened. He was granted release from the government. But instead of telling him that and pulling out of his cell, the guards told him that he was to be executed. As he walked out the door to the courtyard to assumingly be shot, God caused one of the most amazing things that I can ever think of to happen that has ever happened maybe in the history of the world. 1,500 hardened criminals stood at the doors to their cells. Attention. Raised their hands to the east and sang Dimitri's heart song to Jesus Christ. He could never have known that God's change in his character would affect those people that way. And as Bob said, all God needed then was an earthquake and the gospel would be spread throughout that region. His jailers released him from their grip and turned to him demanding to know, who are you? How can this happen? And he responded simply, I am a son of the living God and Jesus is his name. Guys and girls, 
by impacting our culture, I don't mean we fight against many of the traditional Christian things that we've done in our culture for so long. I don't mean that. I don't mean we fight for or against gun rights. We preach Christ to murderers. I don't mean we advocate for conservative judges or liberal judges, but that we tell people about the only judge that really matters, Jesus Christ, who is coming again for his people to judge the living and the dead. We proclaim Christ and him crucified only and primarily. And we do this in every social circle we have, whether we're in jail or in our church, whether at our work by the water cooler or in our families and our friendships, whether we're in our neighborhoods or with strangers, we never know the impact of our faithful witness will have. Let God change everything about you, including the impact on your culture, like Dimitri, and like many others of you are faithfully doing now, as Paul would say, excel still more. Continue doing that. So then I have a question that I would like Philip to answer. Is there something beneath our noses right now that we can do as a body, this local body, that would evidence that our hearts are changed, that our hope has changed, and that would impact our culture, that would change it. So, Philip, take your 10 minutes. Talking about how we can change our culture, what kind of ministries we need to uh, make an impact, and I think one of the biggest ones for our body is camp. I, w- I definitely wanted to bring this up more in, you know, the worship service, but then Phil told me about this opportunity, and I thought, you know, this would be a good time, beginning of the year, to start thinking about this, because if you think about it, camp is kind of this crazy big undertaking we have. I've been praying about it a bit, and God has given me two thoughts about camp so far. One, this ministry is a huge gift, right? God, if you think, you know, you learn about all the history of all the people who have built camp over the years, it's crazy what they've done, and we're still doing it. So it's a gift from God. And two is that it's not easy, all right? If if it were easy, then every church would do it, right? But they don't, right? Even, you know, I don't know what Watermark does, but a church our size shouldn't be doing what we do at camps. Um, so with that in mind, I think I called Kate Lett last week, and she said, oh, you should explain camp. And I like, kind of wrote it down, like, okay, explain camp, easy. But then I thought about it, and you know, if you haven't been there, camp's kind of hard to explain, but I'm going to do my best to sell this to you. When I say camp, though, but I really mean there's two camps. We have children's camp, which goes from third to sixth grade, and then we have youth camp, which goes all the way to the end of high school. So if a kid starts at the very beginning, they can go to camps for ten whole years. All right? So... We go to a place called Jan K Ranch in Detroit, Texas. We've been going there for 30 plus years. It's great. They're all Christians there and they love us and they pray for us. And we try to cram into the week of camp as much fun as humanly possible. We get them up at the crack of dawn, 7 a.m. every day, and we go until the sun goes down and sometimes even after the sun goes down. We have games at kids' camp. We have things like canoeing, crafts, like archery and riflery. And at youth camp, we have this big competition that stretches through the whole week. And then also, more importantly, we have the gospel going through the whole week. For youth camp, we have a good teaching. 
the kids hear twice a day, and at kids' camp they hear a missionary story and a camp story that we tell every year. We've been cycling through them every year that tells, it's an allegory about Christ and how he died for all our sins. And then on top of that, we also have music, praise music for the kids to learn, and we also have verses that they memorize through the whole week. A lot of these kids, especially in the past couple years, do not go to our church. So probably the biggest impact we have is that for a whole week, these kids are getting a big dose of Christ's love, something they might or might not get. Hopefully, you know, you're sold on this, on camps. I think it's definitely impacted my life and a bunch of people in here. If you ask a bunch of people like Derek or Lenny, they will tell you stories for days about seeing one kid act one way at the beginning of the week and acting completely different at the end. Uh, So we've seen these things happen. In fact, we have one success story up in the junior high right now. I don't know if you've ever talked to Jonathan Ferguson in middle school, but he's a kid. He came to kids camp every year. And if you had asked me that if he'd be coming to church every week, I would, I don't know what I would have said, but he has come to our youth group and church almost every week all year, ever since he could start going to youth group. So this is the kind of impact we can have. We can, you know, make new believers that are ultimately changed. So if we're going to do camp, if we're going to do it well, then we need to have a plan. And there are three things that you can do. Even if you're, you know, you're not as young as you used to be and you can't make it out to Detroit with us, there's still a lot to do. First and most importantly, we are going to have a prayer group starting this month. All right. There is a lot to pray for. There is praying for the campers, the ones we don't know yet, hopefully, that are going to come. We need to pray for the counselors. We need to pray for the message that the kids will hear. And need to pray for the outreach efforts. All right. Talk to Kate Lett. Her and Ray are going to be heading up that group. But we need to start praying for this right now. The second one is kind of obvious. We need people to go to camp. All right. We need counselors. We need staff. We need people to love on these kids all week. You know, we've had, we have people who have done it for many years and, you know, we'll be reaching out to you. But if you think you haven't gone before and you think, hey, this maybe sounds neat, I want to try it, then, you know, reach out to me and we can definitely have a talk. And the third one is one that is also very important, but I don't know if we've been this intentional about it. I want to make a post-camp outreach team. So... Usually what happens is, you know, we'll have a couple kids actually come to Christ, which is amazing. But then we, I'm not sure what happens. I haven't been included in it, but the plan for reaching out to them after camp is vague at best. All right. Maybe it has a, maybe there's a letter involved somewhere. I don't know. But what I want to do is get a group of people together who are prepared and have a plan for after camp for those kids who get saved, and maybe even, you know, ones who renew their faith and whoever, I want to have a team ready to meet them and do whatever they can to help them get them into the church, even if it's not ours, all right? 
to help water the seed that hopefully we have planted. So, I feel like this ministry is a huge outreach opportunity. And if we all work together, I think we can pull this off with the Holy Spirit, right? Um, Okay, this is kind of a crazy thought I had kind of thinking about this. But do you ever think about... Okay, I, I have like this kind of weird theory about why we're here, all right? Like, kind of just maybe the reasons we're here aren't the ones we think they're here, right? Why we're here. And maybe the reason this church even exists is so we can have this camp to reach out to kids. I'm, I'm not even going to say that's our official position, but... But this, this is a huge opportunity, and I would love all of you to help out with it. So with that, let me pray, and then we will be dismissed. Gracious Lord, thank you uh, for bringing us all today and for giving us uh, such a bond with each other that we can put together huge projects like camp. Let us be like the Thessalonians. Let us work and have deeds that spread and people talk about for years to come. Uh, Let our efforts have the impact on the next generation, who then in turn pass it on to the next, to the next, and the next. This None of this would be possible, Lord, if your Holy Spirit does not help us. We ask, we plead that you would come help us. Build this house for us. Go before us so that efforts will be fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen.